It was mild, cloudy, windless, not even a breeze. The only temperature I felt was the cooling in the back of my thighs and butt cheeks. The cold, hard concrete was giving me fuzzy feet and it tingled up my shins. I'd been sat there for some time. Considering the area was built up, I'd not seen another human, not even a car drive past. I could hear the faint noises of kids playing in the backyard somewhere, the occasional thud of a football hitting a garage door. Below me, either side of the track, overgrown brambles showing off their fruit, and blackbirds in and out, the silence only broken by their song. I could feel the texture of the bridge wall imprinting on my legs, the coarse, hard, cold surface making its impression, reminding me this was not a suitable seat, but I stayed. In my head, I was playing a game. How long could I last till the numbness and the aching was too much? My feet couldn't feel the trainers surrounding them. The distraction to why I was there in the first place was very welcome. I was looking through my feet to the track below, slowly raising my head along the line of the track that seemed to go on for miles, just straight, long, no bends. It was calm. I'd been on that rail track before, nearly a year back. I was called to deal with the after effects of someone stepping in front of a train nearly a quarter of a mile from the platform. Parts were still being found. You never entirely forget those sort of jobs. At the start of 2003, I took the attestation and was sworn in as a police constable for West Midlands Police Force. A short, active career ended after only three years. The force wasn't right for me. Uh, I wasn't right or suitable for the force. However, during that time, I experienced things that have made me the person I am today. I've learned about who I was and probably more importantly, who I was not. I can remember thinking that day as we drove on to the next job, just how desperate and miserable someone must be to end their life in such a way. I can also recall discussing this with my oppo and saying just how selfish it was, leaving such a mess and devastation for others to deal with. The driver, the passenger, the emergency services, the family. Over the next few months, what I thought was my pretty perfect life started to take a nosedive. While on a trip to Australia during annual leave, I was told during a call back home that I needed to return as my grandma had died. At work, I had started to get complacent. The standards were dropping. Falling out with my sergeant wasn't uncommon. Being late, shoddy paperwork. I was on a path to losing my job. And I dealt with all of this the only way I knew how. By ignoring it and plodding on, pun intended. Just carrying on as if everything was normal. Just like I did back in 1994, in my first year of senior school when my dad was diagnosed with terminal testicular cancer. Within a few weeks, he was hospitalised and on the most intense chemotherapy and radiotherapy treatments, all with the hope of keeping him alive for just a few more weeks. At the same time, my best mate, Jonathan, had similar news about his dad. It became almost like a dark game of whose dad's the worse. 
over the weeks, both of us comparing notes on how unwell our respective fathers were. I can recall being rushed to the city hospital in Nottingham uh, by my grandparents. The drive there sat in silence to be greeted by my mum and a few other relatives and Reverend Beardall, our, uh, our village vicar. Mum had been asked to make plans. Doctors could do no more and Dad was dying. As an 11-year-old, being told to say goodbye to your dad was, was a pretty heavy thing. Over the next 24 hours, waiting back at home with my grandparents, constantly crying, the phone never rang. On Tuesday, after the weekend, I went back to school. I expected Jonathan to be asking me all these questions as he always did after the weekend, but he wasn't there. His dad died. Mine didn't. Now the sense of guilt, knowing that I still had a dad, despite him being unrecognisable and gravely ill, I still had one, and Jonathan didn't. That guilt lived with me, and only really resurfaced years later during some CBT therapy in 2006. It sounds ridiculous when you read it out, when you heard the words... I felt guilty my dad didn't die. I don't think I'll ever get over that. Plodding along my police career, and yes, the pun was intended, it ended with my resignation. If truth be told, it would have ended without my resignation anyhow. I took time off to evaluate my options and to find my path basically to get blind drunk and spend two months in a chromatic state being pissed 24-7. I had a modest inheritance that I was working through at an alarming rate and by week eight had smashed through over 18k of savings, literally just on alcohol, partying and hotel rooms. Still living 75 miles away from where I grew up, in an area where I'd lost every single friend I had due to being a total jerk, it was a phone call with my mum that triggered a series of events that would see me about to jump in front of a train. My granddad was the proudest man alive when I became a police officer. Every one of his friends knew. I was always introduced as the police officer grandchild. When I left, I didn't really have the guts to tell him. I couldn't face the look of disappointment on his face, so I didn't. I left that to my mum to tell him. And she rang me to tell me, and as I was totally smashed out of my face, I never took the call and just let the answer phone get the message. I didn't play that message till the day after an incredibly hard session on the JD, listening to what she had to say as I was walking to the pub for round three, seven, ten, whatever it was. I've told Grandad, he didn't say anything, he just handed the phone back to Nani. That's the name I gave my grandma when I was a top, because I couldn't say nanny. Now I knew the devastation I had caused. His firstborn grandchild, the golden child, turns out to be a failure. It stopped me in my tracks, literally and figuratively. I was stood right on the bridge over Birmingham to Coventry tray line. I stood there for what must have been I don't know, several minutes until I took a seat. The cold 
wall overlooking the track. I still don't know how long I sat there for. Countless trains went past over the time sat there. The thought about jumping didn't cross my mind until I recalled being on cleanup duty all those months back. Was it selfish to do it? I can remember the pins and needles climbing up my legs and the phrase my grandma used to say when we were, used to hang out on the garden wall. You'll get piles sat on that wall there. What would happen if I missed the train? What would happen if I just landed on the roof and ended up in Birmingham? How would I explain I got up there? What if I caused such a mess that the driver has nightmares and can never work again? What would happen to the blackberries on the side? Would people still eat them? All ridiculous questions racing through my head, but with every question, daft or not, the same answer kept filtering its way through, kept trickling like water through stones. Fuck it. Just do it. Jump. My phone was vibrating in my pocket. It was a call. I didn't answer it. I didn't even look at it took my phone out of my pocket when it stopped ringing. It was a missed call from my mum. Phone in hand, I could hear the recognisable sound of a train making its way towards the bridge from behind. Then, out of nowhere, my phone vibrated in my hand, and on autopilot, I opened the text message. It was my mum. Love you. Ring me when you can. The train got closer and I shuffled my now totally dead arse towards the edge. Closer. I put the phone back in my pocket. Took the biggest breath. She'll know. Something inside me shouted this at me. Your mum will know that the very last thing you read slash saw was her message of love. But you still jumped. How do you think that's going to make her feel? There was no counter to that. Where was the voice telling me to just fuck it and jump? He'd fucked off. Guilt. Crippling, horrible, gut-wrenching guilt took over like a virus. Mum would blame herself after finding that out. The train passed. I didn't hear it, it just went silently. I've no recollection of the rest of that day, other than arriving at my mum and dad's house later that evening and breaking down. It took me several days, weeks to admit I had a problem, that I needed help. Not once. Not even Grandad. Not once did anyone in my family say anything other than supportive words of encouragement. I'll never be able to convey just how important that was in my rehabilitation. Being able to let go of the guilt I had placed on myself for being a failure, for allowing myself to go into self-destruct was paramount in enabling my recovery, I later discovered. 